Our passage today is John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, This morning we're continuing on with our uh, study of the Gospel of John and his account of the final events and the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it's really important for us that we... Keep in mind something here, uh, and it's, it's very, very vital to us to get it, but I think it's pretty obvious. John didn't just write this gospel to, to, to write a gospel. It's not like he was just bored and thought, you know, I guess I have nothing better to do. I'll write a gospel about Jesus. Uh, that's not the idea. I've got a lot of free time, play golf, write a gospel. I guess I'll write a gospel. That's not the idea here. John writes intentionally, writes with purpose. Uh, it's, it's not just writing to write. He's not just writing because he thinks readers are bored. It's not as if, well, nobody has anything better to do. I guess I'll write something so people have something to read. That's, that's not the angle either. It's not the point. And we really, we get this in our world today. Uh, I, I sometimes make phone calls while I'm driving with my Bluetooth audio thing. So I'll be driving around. The other day I was driving and I was at a stoplight and I'm on the phone. And right next to me I look over and Laura Brazo is right there in her car next to me. 
And so I'm on the phone, and I'm talking and doing my thing while we're at the stoplight. And I saw her yesterday at the uh, Easter egg hunt uh, as we were preparing and cleaning up all the, the stuff for that. And I told her, I said, you know, it was good to see you. I hope you know I'm on the phone when, whenever I was at that stoplight. And she goes, I, I thought that. Either that or you're a crazy person, one of the two. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, you're, she's right. I would have been crazy if I was just there doing this at a stoplight. That would have been bizarre. Uh, but I was on the phone. And, and oftentimes I'll make phone calls to people here in our church. And I'll say, hey, this is Matt Kahn from NBC. And, and a lot of times I get the same response. It'll be, Matt Cobb. And, and in that response, I, I'm taking it one of two ways. Either people know that when I'm calling you, I'm not just sort of calling to call and calling for a reason. Or maybe that's just how Pacific Northwest people greet one another on the phone. I'm not familiar with that yet. And I got to pick that up. But, you know, I'll answer and be like, hey, you know, I got to do the high pitch say the person's name. Maybe that's just how you guys say hi to each other, but I don't think that's it. I don't think Pacific Northwest people just do that all the time. Um, You do it because you know there's a reason for the call. There's a purpose to it. I'm not just, hey, you know, I was bored just driving around. I give you a jingle, see what's up. Uh, No, I'm, I'm calling for a reason, and you get that, and I'm doing that. And that's how we need to understand the Gospel of John. John is not just writing to write. It's not just, oh, hey, John wrote. Great, that's wonderful. No, there's purpose to this writing. And John makes it really clear in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written, meaning the words in his gospel are written. And here we go. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John makes it really clear. I'm writing, and I'm writing for a certain purpose, that you might believe who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in him and in him alone is their life. It's a big deal. It's a big question that John wants his reader to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a huge question that every single one of us, when we read this account, that the aim is not just to read about Jesus and be like, well, that's interesting, or wow, that's a terrible story, or boy, that part's fascinating. I've never thought about that. John is writing to get you as a reader to answer this question, who is Jesus? And for John, the answer is, he is the Christ, the Son of God, and in him and in him alone will you have life. And so for us this morning, as we read this passage and unpack it, I want us to keep thinking about that idea of who is Jesus. So let's begin here in verses 1 through 3. It says this, Then Pilate took took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. It's interesting that John 19 starts off this way because if you read John 18 Verse 38, Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. And at that point in John 18, 38, he could have said, I find no guilt in him. Everyone, go home, get out of here. I'm tired, you're tired, it's early in the morning, go back to sleep. But he doesn't do that. Pilate instead takes a different course of action here. And instead he offers a choice. He says there's a tradition that there be one set free. And so the choice before the crowd is, do you choose justice or injustice? Justice is this, the one who has been declared innocent, be set free. Jesus has been declared innocent. So it would make sense, the just thing to do would be to set him free. Or, 
do you do and choose injustice and do what and set free a person who is a notorious criminal, one who's an insurrectionist, one who is a, a rebel? Everyone knows it. So who do you choose? Set free the innocent one or set free the guilty one? And they choose to set free the rebel, Barabbas. So now John 19 starts off, and so Pilate's first option didn't work out how he anticipated. So now we go to another way of setting Jesus free, and it's a way that would have helped his own cause. By flogging Jesus, a couple of things would have happened, at least in Pilate's mind. This is what he's thinking would happen. One is this, is it would satisfy the crowd. The crowd wants Jesus to be punished. So flogging Jesus is a form of punishment. So that would satisfy the crowd. But in doing this, Pilate sets himself up as the authority. He's not just going with the whims of the crowd. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not just your little puppet. I'm going to do what I think needs to be done, so we'll flog him. It's his way of putting himself as authority, and in doing so, he believes it will set Jesus free. That's at least the idea. So Pilate gives Jesus a flogging. He declares for a flogging to take place in John 19.1. Most likely, this would have been a less severe flogging. At this point, Jesus had yet to be sentenced. This is prior to his sentencing. We read in the other Gospels that Jesus then receives a second flogging, and this one would have been the most brutal of floggings. This is the one where men would have gone and tortured and beaten with whips, with bones, with items of lead and metal to pierce the skin and inflict wounds. That comes later. So John 19, it's a flogging that's to appease the people, to set Pilate as the one who's in charge, and to free Jesus. But that's not what happens. A flogging and release doesn't take place in John 19. Instead, John gives us more. We see that soldiers come before and actively mock Jesus. They want to humiliate Jesus. So they twist together a crown of thorns, and, and, and in studying this passage, one of the things that I just blew my mind was the idea that some of these thorns would have been up to 12 inches in length. It's just a mind-blowing idea. I can't wrap my mind around that. It would have been to inflict pain, but to humiliate Jesus. They put him in a royal robe, and in mockery, they pay homage to Jesus while striking him in the face. They treat Jesus as if he is a defeated king. And in the midst of all this chaos, he's been declared innocent, but he's not set free. He's declared innocent and not chosen. He's declared innocent and receives a flogging. In the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all the clutter, truth is spoken, and yet people are blind to the truth that's spoken. It said, Hail, King of the Jews. And this is said with mockery, but it's a true statement. In John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael says about Jesus, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And it's true, Jesus is King. In John 18, Jesus describes his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is greater than any and all other kingdoms. Think about that. The Roman Empire as sure and as certain, as stable, as powerful as you think the Roman Empire to be, Jesus says, my kingdom is greater. Jesus is king. His kingdom is great. And that's said here, but it's said in a mocking way, in a way where the people don't believe it. And the question for us is, do we believe it? Do we believe Jesus to be king? 
Do we believe Jesus has all authority and all honor? It all goes to him. Because if we believe Jesus to be king, it changes everything about the way we live, the way we navigate life, the way we we work ourselves through life. Think about it this way. The natural human default, the way you're, you're, you're now set up in light of sin is to put yourself at the center. You are the authority. That's how we all operate on our own. But if we believe Jesus to be king, then we are no longer the authority. We are no longer the end in and of ourselves. We are not the ultimate one who receives glory and honor. That place now belongs to Jesus because he is king. And because Jesus is king, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we obey. All of a sudden, obedience makes sense. If Jesus is king, if he is the center of our lives, he is the one who gets all glory and honor, it makes sense then to be obedient to Jesus. But if he's not, and if we are instead the center of our own lives, then obedience to Jesus just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't appeal to us. We won't do it. So obedience, submission to his authority, is centered around the idea that Jesus is king. Many of us can profess Jesus is king, but we don't live, we don't function as people who really believe it. Sadly, many of us might be like this soldier's who can say something true and yet live in absolute opposition to that truth. Jesus is king. Do you believe it? And do you live like a person who believes it? We continue on, verses 4 through 8. says this, As Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And with this section, we now have three different instances where Pilate has declared Jesus to be innocent. He says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. So it's said three different times. John writes it down three different times. Why does John do that? Is he thinking, well, maybe they forget. Let me just add it one more time. No, it's the point is to emphasize the innocence of Jesus. Well, why is it so important that Jesus be innocent? Why does that even matter? Here's why. Because the purity of a sacrifice has always mattered. Why is it so important that Jesus be innocent and be pure? Because the purity of a sacrifice has always mattered. In Exodus chapter 12, we read, Your lamb shall be without blemish. Purity matters in Exodus 12. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish. Any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Purity matters in Deuteronomy 17. The sacrifice must be pure. It must be perfect. It must not have a blemish, a defect. So it is vital that Jesus be innocent. It's vital that Jesus be pure. Otherwise, his sacrifice is in vain. It does us no good. We can read passages in the Bible, and we can actually have a confidence that they're true because Jesus is the pure, 
perfect, innocent sacrifice. In Isaiah 53, we can read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 11, By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. How can we be confident that peace with God is real? How can we be confident that restoration and healing is possible? How can we be confident that we can be made righteous before God? It's because of the work of Jesus Christ. How can we know the work of Jesus Christ is sufficient and satisfies? It's because it is the pure, perfect sacrifice, fully innocent, fully satisfying the wrath of God. Because of that, peace with God can be had. Restoration can be had. Righteousness is given. This morning, do we believe that Jesus' innocent, perfect sacrifice does what we can never do and gives to us what we can never earn? It's important that we believe this. It's important that we see this, that we don't have a righteousness of our own. Righteousness is given to us and placed upon us through the work of Jesus, the perfect work of Jesus. Peace with God is found. Even though we are rebels, we had enmity with God. Reconciliation and peace has been found through Jesus Christ, the perfect, innocent sacrifice. Would we today be people who believe this and rejoice in this? But in this section, we also see that same idea. Truth is spoken, and yet, sadly, people are blind to the truth. Pilate says, behold the man. When Pilate says this, he says it to be ironic. He says, behold this man who is beaten, who has been humiliated, who is a king, who is weak and pitiful. Behold this man. That's how he's saying it. And if you think about it, it's true. Jesus is the man. He is the Word made flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this about Jesus. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But Pilate says, look how pitiful Jesus looks. Look how non-threatening. Look how weak and pitiful he is. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, no, no, no. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. He's, He's uniquely glorious. And Pilate says it, but he doesn't believe it. Behold the man. It's true. The word has come in flesh. Glory is given to him. Glory that's of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is glorious, and do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is glorious? Do we believe that his glory matters? Because if we do, then it makes sense for us to live with a passion and a delight to make much of Jesus. If we really believe Jesus to be supremely beautiful and supremely glorious, then living for him to bring him glory, all of a sudden it makes sense. The way you do family, where you aim to bring glory to God with the way you operate as a family, it makes sense if you believe Jesus to be glorious. 
the way you do your work and the way you interact with the people in our community. It makes sense to bring glory to God if you believe Jesus is glorious. This morning, I I hope that we're not a people who just come here and somehow give a half-hearted idea of Jesus being glorious and it doesn't affect the way we live. Let us be people who really believe it and live like we believe it. Jesus is uniquely glorious. And because of that, we ought to bring everything we have, every passion, every delight, every gift, every opportunity, every bit of our time in existence, and say we want it all to bring glory to God because we believe Him and Him alone. He's the one who deserves it. He deserves all the glory and all the honor. He is our glorious Savior. Then we keep looking here in verses 9 through 11. It says, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In this section, Jesus puts two things together that are really important. Two ideas that are very important for us to understand and to affirm this morning. The first one is this. Jesus makes it clear that all the events, everything that has happened to get them to this moment was not a mistake. All the people, all the interactions, all the events, all of it is not a mistake. God didn't have an oopsie moment. God didn't say, oh my goodness, what did I do? Oh boy, this is wrong. There's no miscalculation here. Jesus makes it clear. Pilate, your authority is not your authority. You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. It's not a mistake, Pilate, that we're here right now. It's not a mistake that everything's brought us to this moment. God does not make mistakes. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, in his sermon here in Acts 2, he says this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God. Peter says in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God. This was not an accident. This is not a mistake. And yet Jesus also makes clear, secondly, that there is real responsibility for the evil that's led to this moment. He says, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, sin is very much real in this moment. People are very much responsible for the evil that's taken place. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, this entire set of events, they teach us that both things are true, that God is absolutely and totally sovereign and that humanity is absolutely and totally responsible And it's important that we affirm both of these to be true. It's important that we view that God is sovereign. We should read Ephesians 1 and believe it. That God wasn't just juggling pieces together to make up some plan of rescue. This is the plan of God. 
to rescue people who could never rescue themselves through Jesus Christ. This was the plan of God, the definite plan of God. But at the same time, it's important that we understand that humanity is responsible. There is no one who can say, well, I'm innocent on the matter. No one can claim innocence. Everyone's responsible. Everyone's guilty. Romans chapter 3 says this, none is righteous. You say, really, none? Paul writes, none is righteous. No, not one. Oh, wow, okay. So none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Into their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one is innocent. We're all responsible. Humanity is absolutely responsible. God is absolutely sovereign. And when we believe both of these to be true, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity, it ought to press us. It ought to push us. It ought to compel us to share the truth of the gospel with any and every person we encounter. Sharing the gospel is the most loving thing you can do today. Sharing the gospel is the most loving thing you can do with your family members. You break through the awkwardness. You break through all the formalities. You share the truth of the gospel because you love your family. It's because we believe people most definitely need a savior that we share the gospel. It's because we believe that it was the plan of God that those who are in Christ would understand that they have now been sent to go and make disciples of all nations that we share the good news of Jesus Christ and the rescue that's provided in the work of Christ with any and all people. So Romans chapter 10 all of a sudden makes sense, for it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, there's the plan. That those who are in Christ would understand they have been sent to go and make disciples. So because of that, they speak the truth. And when they speak the truth, there will be those who hear the truth. And those who hear the truth will believe the truth. And those who believe the truth will call on Jesus Christ will no longer try to stake their righteousness on their own works, but instead understand that they can only be made right through the work of Christ. So they will call on Him, and when they call on Him, they will be saved. This is the plan of God. God is absolutely sovereign. Humanity is absolutely responsible. So church, today, let's believe that, let's affirm it, and let that compel us to go share the truth with others. Sharing the gospel is absolutely the most loving thing any of us can do for any other person. 
then we get to verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The Jews had a plan. And we see it in John eleven fifty three, that the leadership at that point said from that day on, they made plans to put him, him being Jesus, to death. That was the plan. In John chapter 11, we see it. The plan is established. The goal, Jesus be put to death. So they have Jesus arrested. Jesus is then questioned before the high priest, Caiaphas. And everything's going according to plan. Now they bring him before Pilate. And there's a speed bump here in this plan. There's a moment of uncertainty about the plan because Pilate doesn't initially go with it. Instead, he keeps saying over and over again, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. So at this moment, Pilate is yet to take the bait. Jesus is innocent, according to Pilate. So they are now forced to press Pilate with a political trap, to push Pilate to the point where he has no choice but to give in to capitulate to the pressure of the moment, to have Jesus be crucified. But in order to set this trap, they then give their allegiance to a lesser king. They accuse Pilate, if you don't do something, then you are not a friend of Caesar. And they know, they know how important it is for Pilate to be considered a friend of Caesar. Because they know how serious loyalty was taken. If there was even a hint, a glimmer, a suspicion of disloyalty to Caesar, Pilate would be dealt with harshly. So Pilate gets it. All right, this is the move. This is the make. But like a lot of people who are forced into something, he does it begrudgingly. He knows how to get under their skin. He says, okay, you push me, I'll push you. And so he mocks the people. He says to them, behold, your king. He knows it's going to get under their skin. He knows it's going to anger them. Behold your king. He's your king. Here, behold him. Look at this. Shall I crucify your king? He knows it's going to get under their skin. And with their response, their blindness to the truth is on full display, and it is utterly tragic. They respond, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. In John chapter 1, verse 11, we, we read, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And John chapter 1, verse 11 proves to sadly be true. Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king whose kingdom is greater than any and all other kingdoms is standing before this crowd. And what do they say? 
we have no king but Caesar. They give their allegiance to a lesser king. They give their allegiance to one who is not only lesser, but he's less good, he's less powerful, less supreme than the true king, King Jesus. And this morning, I hope that we can consider this. Could the same be said of us today? Where do our allegiances lie? A great way to think about it is this. Where does our affection lie? Because love and loyalty often go together. So think of it this way. What delights your soul? What brings you the greatest joy? Because whatever that is, whatever it is that draws your affections, it will also draw your allegiance. And for many of us, if we're honest, what draws our greatest affection, our greatest delight, isn't Jesus, but it's something else. It's someone else that's way lesser, way less good, way less powerful, way less eternal than King Jesus. Evaluate today where your allegiance and where your affections lie. Don't buy into the idea that somehow you drift into allegiance or affections for Christ. No one in the room can say, well, you know, my great-grandparents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, my parents were Christians, so I guess I'm a Christian too. That's just sort of who I am. You don't drift into this. You don't stumble into this. Christians know. Christians get it. Your affections for Christ, your allegiance to Christ is by grace alone through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Christians get it when we sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We get it. We are saved by grace alone. Our delight in Jesus is by grace alone. It's not the natural default. It's not where you drift into it. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so this morning, I encourage you to think on this. Who is Jesus Christ? John didn't just write to write. He writes that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in Him that we'd find life. If you're a Christian today, you get it. You've experienced it, and I hope and I pray that it would cause you to praise God all the more for what he has done, to rescue you from your sin, and it would press you to share that truth with any and everyone that you have in your life. And if you're not a Christian today, I encourage you, right after this service, you find somebody in this room that maybe you trust and you know well, you start a conversation with them. Don't wait. Don't delay. Come find me. I'll be right up here in the front right after the service. I'd love to talk with you about this idea of what it is to follow Jesus, to have your affections on Christ and your allegiance to Christ. Church, today, it is easy for us to say all kinds of things, but let us believe. Let us believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and let that drive and inform everything we say and everything we do for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John and all the, the words and information we, we, we read and, and can think on in this gospel. Lord, we're, we're thankful to have a very obvious aim in this book, to think on you and who you are, of your work and who you, what it's done. And Lord, today I pray for us that we would be people who, if we, if we believe 
it would cause us to have so much joy in what you've done. We would have so much delight in your work. And it would press us to live differently, live for your glory. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not believe, that Lord, they would take the initiative to to take that step and to, to begin conversation. But Lord, today you've brought them here. It's not a mistake that they're here. They didn't just fall into this place. They're here. So Lord, I pray that they would think on this truth, that God, by your grace, they would be captivated by this truth. They would no longer rely on themselves and their work to be right with you. But Lord, they would see that you were the perfect sacrifice, that Jesus' work does all that's needed. So Lord, today, I pray that we would glory in your work as we prepare for the rest of this week and Easter Sunday coming, that God, we would think on your work and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.